Well, we shall start. We have done formatting, and uh, we have a, a guest here tonight. <laughs> Barb, good to have you back again. This is really cool. It was Sunday, you know, we had uh, Andrew come in, you know, and uh, he actually started work yesterday. You started work yesterday, and you're back. It just, uh, it just didn't seem like our regular Bible study whenever Barb wasn't here. Well, it didn't seem like a regular Tuesday night either. <laughs> <Sitting> home. <laughs> well, it's certainly good to good to see you and doing well. That's the that's the good thing about it. So, we keep praying, right? We keep praying for you as you recover. And uh, uh, well, anyway, um, we go into uh, another part of our series called the Post Reformation, the challenges to the Reformation. And uh, tonight it's going to be dealing with liberalism and neo-orthodoxy. And we have seen so far that there was a challenge to the Reformation right off the get-go because very, uh, very soon there was uh, an inside job happening and it was um, kind of a splitting of the Reformation and, and uh, kind of went their separate ways, the Lutheran side and the Reformed side and uh, Melanchthon probably really had a lot to do with that after uh, after Luther's time, but uh, um, then there were, um, there came the Counter Reformation, quite the challenge to the to the Reformation. But Reformation was uh, pretty triumphant through that time period. Then came along Arminianism that started uh, ever since mankind's been around. <laughs> and it's about man exalting himself a little bit further than what he is. And uh, we, we saw that uh, quite the battle there. Um, and Arminianism is with us today, as we well know. And then uh, last week we looked at the Enlightenment, and that was dealing with the philosophers, whether it be uh, Voltaire, Descartes, John Locke, uh, whether it be the rationalism or whether it be through empiricism. Uh, deism came about uh, during that time. There was David Hume, which was one who said that you know we really can't really know for sure what is out there. We don't know. We don't know what's inside. We don't really know what is real. <laughs> we can't know that. And then along came uh, the ones who said there's uh, really we can't trust history. We can't trust our mind. And along came uh, Romanticism, which was dealing with the feelings. Feelings are good. The mind is good. But put it always in perspective to the Word of God, and uh, that's where all of this stuff was running amok and getting away from the Word of God. And uh, that brings us up to where we're uh, at today. This, a lot of this stuff that happened during the, the, shortly after the time of the Reformation led right into where we're at. How did we get where we're at today? And they've used a lot of this kind of thinking. Um, in Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7, let's turn there. And we see that the church has always battled with this kind of stuff. Believers have always battled against outside forces, inside forces, that really want to take away the validity of God's Word. And Paul says to uh, the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the One who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Galatians 1, 6, and 7. That 
pretty well sums up what we'll be looking at uh, tonight, what we've been looking at. Um, there was a key figure in the late 1800s and uh, 1900s by the name of J. Gresham Macon. Some of you have heard of him. And he fought for truth. It was a hard battle. And um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a prayer that he had and make it our prayer here today. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give Thee thanks for the wonder of Thy grace and the gift of Christ our Lord and Savior. How can we ever find words that shall not seem vain as we think of His love for us? How can we, without shame, try to give Thee thanks for the gift of Christ our Savior who died for us, the just for the unjust? How can we think without shame of the ill way in which we have requited Thee for Thy love? But we rejoice in the knowledge that in Thy Holy Spirit we have been united to Christ through faith. We are His forever. We pray Thee that thus we may be kept safe by one stronger than we are. We pray with all our souls for those who have not found Christ a Savior, that they may be led through the midst of error and doubt into the clear shining of the light of faith. And when they have sought other saviors and their souls are still restless, we pray that they may, through Christ, find their rest in Thee. All that we ask is in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Um, some of these men that uh, we think about, these philosophers, the Voltaires, the Descartes, the, the Locks, David Humes, the deism that came in and everything... Um, we know that there was kind of a, a doleful refrain. Uh, the challenges to the biblical faith just kept coming in waves and then bigger waves and bigger waves. And, and of course, Scripture always wins. And what you want to do is look at God as He works through this. You know, we look around and we see what's happening and it, it really kind of um, can deceive us sometimes. And we think that Christianity is getting beat. It never has been beaten. It will not ever be. And, of course, Jesus said that, didn't He? The gates of hell shall not prevail against thee as we march taking on the truth. But the philosophies of the 17th and 18th centuries made it more difficult for Christianity to flourish as it had. There was quite a revival going on in 14th century, the 15th century, even into the 16th century, the 1700s there. The refrain that kept coming was that in the 19th and the 20th century, a lot of churches fell away from the truth, from historic Christianity, and went into different kinds of liberalism. And that is where we're at today, or a big part of it. So we'll start with liberalism. Um, by the way, just just telling you what what went on. To take you back a little bit. Go back to Geneva. You had great uh, people come out of Geneva. Great preachers, teachers, scholars, Calvin and John Knox, um, so many other people. And then you can think of Turretin. Francis Turretin wrote a great book on justification by faith. After four generations of Turretins theologians, as far as Geneva was concerned, were, were done. Within four generations, 
uh, it had turned very liberal. Matter of fact, Francis Turretin had a son by the name of Jean Alphonse Turretin. He was something of a liberal himself, coming from one of the greatest theologians that the church has ever known, Turretin. And here is a son who was influenced by rational thought. And that's what we talked about last week. The mind was becoming so great. Who knows how far man can go, right? He can just keep, and he's on on an upswing, and there's no stopping the human mind. Ubermensch, Uberman. <laughs> That's and we'll be mentioned in a couple sentences on Nietzsche, uh, pretty shortly here. But this Turretin was influenced by the rational thought of the day. He didn't become a full-fledged deist. But it was not long after this Calvinistic tradition that was in Geneva that he didn't follow the ways that had been set and the Enlightenment made such an impact on him. One who was taught very well. He knew theology. But again, rationalizing, um, things start to become more like deism at that time. Uh, The rationalist... um, than the, the deist. And so, um, as you take a rational type thinking and still trying to believe something of religion, it becomes idolatry and it becomes quite a problem in itself. And people needed to go back to an acceptance of God's simple truth. It's not irrational. It is rational. But in a lot of cases, it is above our understanding. The rationalists thought they could understand everything. And so they could explain anything. They could explain the the Trinity. Everybody should be able to understand that thoroughly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, those guys were smart, weren't they? Um, Churches didn't do well with the Enlightenment. That's kind of where we left off last week. And then the Romanticism, that's dealing with feelings. So you have the, the, the mind and its thinking and the feelings over here. And uh, that's what affected the Western culture so much. That's why the Western culture thinks the way that it does today. And um, it's what they did finally and what Romanticism did and even in the rationalist, they started becoming like this. Everything is within Okay, it's not about facts. It's not about dogma. It's not about information. It's not about the Bible. It's not about creeds. But it's the inner life, and that is what we all have direct access to. So, ever, however, you have a relationship with God in your own way, that is where you want to get to. Well, that sounds like the Eastern religions that came into our country back into the 60s. Taught transcendental meditation and you can find the God within, right? And uh, so that's uh, interesting as, as you look at that. Now what we do is we look at liberalism and we can ask, well, why did the churches start to fall away so quickly? There's probably a lot of answers. Um, Ideas is why. But ideas are good as long as everything is inside the Word of God. As 
as we think that we shape our thinking. And what is Romans 12, 1 and 2? Did we study that last week? Did we get into that one? We have to be thinking about this because as, uh, as man thinks, where is he supposed to turn his attention to? Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not, and here we go, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So it's not within that we find the answer, but it's outside of ourselves. It's through the God who reveals Himself. Yeah. You had a good one last week. This better be as good as that one. That was dealing with sin, by the way. She asked, did they have anything dealing with... Hang on to your question. Did they have anything where they talked about sin in those philosophies? No. That was the problem. That's where the problem of man exists. Now, Audrey, sorry. Um, so the last part of verse 1, King James says, which is your reasonable Which is your spiritual service of worship? Yeah. Right? Maybe uh, even Yeah, well, to set it up, he says, present everything. Present your bodies. Everything that you are, your mind, your your emotions, your will, just everything, we, we present it to God, right? And then he's, and let that be a living and holy sacrifice. Instead of like what the priest did, that day is over. Now it's us that are putting ourselves uh, on on his altar in, in that sense. Our, our whole, we are living sacrifices that are acceptable to God, which is your, and mine says spiritual service. And uh, and then he mentions of worship. And um, we know because of what God has done, we as Christians owe God the very highest form of service that we can do. Uh, priestly service, if that be that way. And um, so it, there's a spiritual service that we do just by living it constantly, day in, day out, every moment. And so there's where the uh, part of worship is as we as we serve Him, and that would be reasonable. That you know, so that translation is good. That comes right out of the King James, and that's the way I memorized it uh, at first. I know it looks like it's saying something different, but um, not really. He's talking about having the sacrifice, and he relates that to our worship in in, in an ongoing, constant way. And I didn't really know what a reasonable here meant. Reasonable, like reason, intellectual, or reasonable, like Well, it is. You're right, and that's the idea. It's logic. It's logical rational. that we would do that. It's rational. Yeah, this, says, um, yeah. this is the ESV, but it gets an alternate um, translation. It's rational service. And mine has logical liturgy. So there, it, it's saying it only makes sense that we 
serve or worship Him, the two go hand in hand, don't they? And uh, and how we do that is having our mind renewed then. Actually, we could. Uh, I probably cheated on that a lot. That verse right there, could, you could spend an hour on easy. <laughs> but it is, it is great. Yes, we did. Um, um, <laughs> well, those in, a, in that book of Ephesians, as you know, you, you listen to those on CDs. You go, what? How many years has that been? <laughs> Every that was every week, you know. Every week he pumped that out, and boy, he was in there for years. Yeah, six chapters. <laughs> but he did not leave any stone unturned. I don't believe in that. And that was a guy that probably had a lot to say about some of this stuff here. I'd like to borrow some because I've heard him talk about some of the ages that we've gone through and, and such as that. But um, ideas. That's where all of this was going, though. And so Machen gave Princeton Seminary an address to the students about Christianity and the culture of it. And here's some words that he said to the students and the faculty. Now, he's the one that had to challenge in the Presbyterian church, which had been so biblical, so sound, he had to challenge them, and it was a fight and a battle one of the hardest fights in battle in the history of the church that any individuals had. He says this, False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. says it all right there, doesn't it? We could leave it at that, but he has a lot more to say. I have a paragraph. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet only succeed in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas. When the thinking is now controlled by ideas, whether it be politically, right? Economically, socially, on and on. Which by the resistless force of logic prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is destroy the obstacle at its root. So when it, we should, when we see ideas being put forth and it's outside of Scripture, we need to make it evident. Many would have the seminaries combat error by attacking it as it is taught by its popular exponents. Instead of that, seminaries confuse their students with a lot of German names unknown outside the walls of the universities. That method or procedure is based simply upon a profound belief in the pervasiveness of ideas. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow, and he's right on this, to move armies and pull down empires. That's what happens in society. Look at the Western culture. Okay, let's go to Second Corinthians 10 and see what Christianity is to do. And here you can see the battle is always there. They're trying to knock out everything that is biblical and true. We're trying to hold up truth and to have people's minds changed to conform to this truth. In Second Corinthians 10.3... 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. All of that that's been built up. All those ideas. And they, they keep putting more stones into it where it's almost impregnable. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. But don't you like that? That's what we are to be doing. We're to be destroying those fortresses that have been put up. And it seems like overwhelming and saying, well, who am I to do that? You have the truth and they don't. Not that you're going to change their mind, but we need to put forth uh, the truth whenever the opportunity arises. But that's right. They have armies. Armies have moved and they pulled down empires. This kind of uh, thinking that progressed. But Princeton, they studied the German theologians there. When I say Princeton, I'm saying uh, in the 1800s it was a very, very sound seminary. A great seminary. Uh, a great school. Very biblical. And of course you had B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, A. Hodge, um, some of the, and many others that, that came from there. But they, they took these, some of these German theologians and they would study them to the point of here's, here's what they're doing. They would show how important their ideas are and the thought that was coming out of Germany. And then the importance of us or Christians being able to answer those false ideas. Because if it's not coming from Scripture, if it's not coming for the glory of God, guess where it's heading? It might start out in a good way, but look where it's going to go. Always, without, without God being in the middle of it, it's going to go awry. Everything is. So that was their idea there at that time. And as we think about liberalism, I'll, I'll sum it up basically in five books that were put out. And it has made these, these books at least as far as the Enlightenment is concerned and the Renaissance that led into where this is at now, very significant happenings, very significant uh, of what uh, went on in this world and why the change. And so it's a total new way of looking at the Bible, the church. Um, one of the books that was written, and we this is where we were into last week, a guy by the name of... Schleiermacher. <laughs> Schleiermacher. <laughs> yeah. um, Friedrich. Uh, father of modern theology. And he believed in religion. He believed in Christianity. At least the way that he uh, made it out to be. And he was a Moravian from the outset. He had a very evangelical, pietistic beginning uh, in college, he started becoming influenced by the Enlightenment. Interesting. In college, colleges have changed by that time. <laughs> We're in the uh, 1800s here. He lived 1768-1834. So it was already changing, wasn't it? Um, he accepted a rational, critical view of the Scriptures. That's that's where we had been at, talking with the philosophers. Uh the romanticism, the very subjective. 
Schleiermacher was very subjective. What's, you can find the answer in here. If I feel good about it, then it's okay. As long as it feels good. You, you test everything by your feelings, not by what the Word of God is, but what you feel. We're up against that today. We fight that battle constantly. Um, there are rational people in the university world who despise Christianity, and they were already doing it then. And um, anyway, I think we have to try to find a way to present the Christian faith to the modern enlightenment people, trying to find that um, medium that can get across to them. Uh, Schleiermacher was all about being good and having this consciousness about ourselves and our and our feelings. It, it's what feels good. It's whatever is deep inside of me. Absolutely dependent upon God. I depend upon God entirely. It sounds good, doesn't it? But he's going by his feelings. You remember that song? You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Now, there's truth to that, you know, because there is a subjectivism that we we should have, and and Scripture even mentions that in Romans eight. But something needs to be said before that, or at least something established of saying, um, you know, we don't go by our feelings, but you know, it's the Word of God and His truth. And then the feelings do come along. God gave them to us. There's always a balance. And that's where the world has always gone. And uh, That's why you can move from the area of history and confessions and revelation from God to mankind as far as the Bible is concerned. And that's all swept aside and it goes to subjective feeling. And there's where Schleiermacher is at. That made it a tremendous impact on people in the 1800s. And when you have the Second Great Awakening, that's why a lot of people who, who were Christians or wanted to be in the Christian realm, the First Great Awakening was a true Great Awakening biblically. The Second Great Awakening was very man-centered. And it's what you can do for God. It's about being good and such. Um, yeah. Um, was there ever much time, and during this time and before this time, generally speaking, was there ever a group of people who just didn't believe in any God whatsoever, like we have now? Because that's what I see now from on personal science, or ha ha ha, how can you believe that? You know, and it just scoffed off that there's a God at all that is on the universe. But it seems to me, as we look back, there. I don't know though. Maybe there was a huge group of people in in this time and before that that were atheistic. Well, I know in Scripture, um, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So there's always been that. Um, of course, you had the Jews who, as a whole, I think you would say, yeah, they were a, a God-believing people. Now, we're not saying that all of them were in the covenant, not by far, but... The fool has said it in his heart. That doesn't mean he's out saying, you know, like some of these pastors today, they'll preach God, and then in their heart they'll no God, as long as I've got an income, exactly. I'm fine. But wouldn't you think of the time that he did away with? 
Yeah, the, the, the pagans had their uh, false gods. Mm-hmm. And I think overall, most people have been religious throughout man's history in one way or another. I think in probably in our time or going back to this time that we're talking about is where it became out in the open. It came out of the closet. You might have some people doubting the existence of God, but it really wasn't really popular. You just had a few people. Even when I grew up in in the 60s or 70s, I didn't know of hardly anybody that would call themselves an atheist. Matter of fact, most people that I knew of, whether they went to church or not, there were a lot of people that didn't go to church, but um, most of them would say they were... They believe in God. This was in the 80s? Uh, 60s, 70s. uh, I noticed then I started seeing a lot more people saying they were atheists. I was challenged by an atheist one time, and uh, I didn't do very good. And I I knew very little of Scripture. I I had nothing to shoot back with. All I could do was say what I thought, and I felt ridiculous. And I went out and, and, uh, well, I I started reading Scripture and, and a lot more. And then I went out and got some good books to kind of help defend. I didn't know who to turn to at the time, and I'm going, "This guy is wrong." He, you know, I felt like he was putting me totally down, but I didn't have an answer. I didn't give him any hope. And that's whenever the Lord started working in my life. I need to get into the Word of God and find out what I can do about this. Atheists have their own God, don't they? They just don't call them God. God unto Absolutely. Yeah. They, they, well, in, in uh, Eastern thought today, which is uh, proceeded to our, our Western culture, um, Shirley MacLaine, I am God, I am God. She's out on the beach in that movie, I am God. And that's what she preaches. We all can find God within. And that's what all this leads up to. We're, we're, we're little gods in the, in the body of Christ. There's a preaching of that. The manifest uh, manifestation sons of God theory that we're all God, just little gods. Well, there is no real atheist or agnostic uh, in a foxhole. Um, they they claim that there is no God, but when it really comes down to where they're really at in their own hearts, um, they have to admit that there is a God. In Romans 1, it says Romans that, doesn't it? What does it say? They they do what? They, they, they've seen what God is. They've seen the creation of the earth. They've seen everything. And God had put within them the law that He put it within their hearts. And still, that they've denied Him, but yet, yet it's still there. I mean, you can't you can't deny that. Yeah. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was very good at that. Sure was. He exposed them to where they had no argument to come back on because he said, "You are a liar. You say that you don't. You, there's no God, but you do know there's a God." I think that's what these guys are doing. They're if we can put him out of here, then we can control this thing. If we can get him out of our minds. People want to do this. They can they can somehow kill him. The death of God. You guys heard of that, right? Yeah, you ever hear them say, um, Oh, Buddha. I think, yeah. <laughs> I, um, this all made brought to mind uh, 
in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, starting maybe at about verse 26. Oh, you were hitting exactly where we are going to go. Oh, really? You're right on it. Yeah, you're thinking right in it, man. Hit because, it. Read it. You know, Read it. Well, I was trying to go back to an idea of an well, ideas an, an answer <laughs> to your question. An, an answer to your question. What does God say about who His people are? That is, you know, and that would help us to understand maybe who His people are not. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, twenty-six and following there. And, um, Anyway, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Uh, mm-hmm. The one thing that stands out there, He is the source uh, of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We didn't have any of that. Mm. And, and the ones who think they have that you know the eggheads, the, the science, you know the, the high-minded, the, the intellectuals, noble, you know, worldly wise men. That's that's who I would say. You know, you don't meet many poor and uh, simple people out there who don't believe in God. Some, you know, is what I've found in my experience. But you do. The more educated you are, the less belief you have in God. Or there could be a danger of it, for sure, yeah. Because yeah. it goes back to the very uh, passage of Scripture in Second Corinthians 10, where it says speculations, which is arrogant reasoning. And um, yeah. this is basically what we're talking about here, is that man in his arrogance has reasoned that there is no God. And, uh, and Paul saying, I cast down all speculations come against that. Uh, so there's no real argument that there is no God. There's no reasoning that can stand against the knowledge of Scripture. Uh, oh, man knows it. I mean, and so when you come up against the, the truth of God's Word, you really don't have any place to really stand uh, other than just uh, flat deny it and mm-hmm. say, well, I don't I refuse to believe it. Absolutely. That's uh, some great Great text there. Uh, well, support that. Believe. Very good. Huh? They don't say they don't believe. They say they don't want to believe. True. Yeah, it's so, a mean, willful. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they don't want to believe. Yeah, uh, well, like in chapter 2, um, of course, he's talking about I didn't come in support of you, superiority of speech. Uh, drop down to verse 5 for time's sake, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. And then he keeps going in that chapter in verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. 
For if they had understood, if they would not have crucified, uh, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as written, things which I have not seen, ears not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us, God revealed them. To us, I don't deserve this. I don't have the intelligence. But He revealed them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. We can understand some of the deep things of God. How is that? Because we just kind of thought it through, right? (laughs) Uh, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And he decides to share that with some chosen people. (laughs) Now, we have received not the spirit of the world. Drop down. um, it it says a natural man does not accept the the spirit of God their foolishness to him there we go that's just what we were just talking about there again right he cannot understand and he cannot and once we were that way because they're spiritually praised but he who is spiritual praises all things yet himself is appraised by no one here we go here's what we want for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. And we're not Christ or the Christ, the New Age presents, but we have the mind of Christ through this Word of God. And that's powerful. So that First Corinthians, that chapter 1 and chapter 2, really just unloads a lot to us on, on this. I, I began, as you were going through those Scriptures too, thinking about, you know how the... the Scriptures talk about God's power, and that power is in us. And yet, and and we think in our you know in our finite thinking, we think about power as being like you know something really strong and a big engine and a bit you know and a lot of juice and a lot you know strength and 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 you know all all you know that that uh, is something yeah showy and and uh, you know really. Obvious, but I think God's power, just like you said in that mystery, you know, the words of the mystery of the gospel, it, it's like His His power is like uh, winsome. Uh, you know, it shows itself in a, you know, in a real uh, mysterious kinds of ways. You know, it's like just just the just the illumination He can give us, and you know, going through His Word. Just like being born again in John three, where the wind blows, and yeah. think of yeah. a gentle breeze. <laughs> yeah, it's like his power, you know, is is unlike what we think of as power, and so much more. Right. That might be this kind of because how it's done. They don't want to show American Idol or little star things. They have a little girl on there. And she looked a little bit like truly simple. She had a curly hair and everything like that. She came out on the stage and she just had a wonderful voice. And how she is Jewish, by the way, in case you're not realizing what I'm talking about. Anyway, and so Howard Stern is like everybody was blown away by this little girl and her voice. And he kept saying to her, I think you have Shirley Temple in in you. And she goes, 
No, I got Jesus in me. <laughs> it just kind of blew his whole day. It's just, it's funny little thing, but you know, there's the little thing, the foolishness of man. Yeah. There's a little child sitting there. Right. She's not buying what he's telling her. It's just, you know, like you're empowering Shirley Kimball to you to sing this. And she's yeah. like going, no, I've got Jesus in me. She did. <laughs> he had to agree with her. You know, they said, "Okay, well, you got Shirley Temple on Jesus." <laughs> well, the um, that first book was called "On Religions: Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers" by Friedrich Schirmacher. Schirmacher. The second one you'll be familiar with. It's called The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. <laughs> Don't really have to mention too much about him, do I? Uh, his book, needless to say, made a tremendous impact on thinking, quote, thinking people. <laughs> yeah. What damage it made. And some Orthodox people responded appropriately to that at that time, whenever that came out and, uh, and there afterwards. Charles Hodge of Princeton Seminary made it very well aware that uh, that was a terrible, uh, terrible book, terrible thoughts that he had. And he wrote a book called What is Darwinism? And he exposed him for what he was. And he said Darwinism is atheism. So there we go where it started becoming popular and Darwin wasn't the first one who thought of this but he was like Luther is there were some pre-reformers but then Luther came on the scene the time was ripe and boom Luther became then the leader and he was the right man that, that God had chosen to do that well here we have a guy that comes on the scene at the right time and uh, even though there had been this thought coming up he definitely is putting atheism right in front and he just and Hodge just calls it the way it is. He says, this is, Darwinism is atheism. Because a lot of people in the church were thinking, hey, he's got some points. And I do want to tell you, at Princeton, there were a couple of guys who I am very thankful for, for their ministry and what they did, and I've read from them. B.B. Uh, Warfield and A.A. A. Hodge. That's um, Hodge's uh, Charles Hodge's son, who were a little bit more sympathetic and they were a little more cautious in the treatment of evolution, didn't speak so much out against it as saying, well, there is a personal creator. We want to make that very well aware, of course. But the creator is working out everything in his own design. What does that do? That opens it up a little bit of saying, and, and you can see why much of the church today now does not believe in a um, uh, a young earth, uh, uh, a literal six-day creation, a seventh-day rest. Um, and these are coming from Princeton guys. <laughs> um, boy, the, the world can make an impact on people, can't it? Um, everything is moving upward. That's, that's really what Charles Darwin is saying. People are liking that. That had already been introduced in... Um, the last uh, century or so before this. It's going to a more higher, profound level of existence. And matter of fact, because of that, now we can explain everything based on that fact. A place that God had previously, when you believe in a sovereign God, you place everything in that, don't you? 
But when you have the Darwin thought, everything goes back to that naturalism and everything is moving upward and forward and onward. Evolution is an excuse not to believe in God. And, and so that's the case with a lot of people who are in, in higher uppers that they know the truth. They just, this is an excuse not to believe in God. Yep. It, and, and there it goes. It denies sin. And they've already thrown that out. You take out God, you take out the holiness of God, then uh, what is man? Well, no longer is he a sinner. Because God makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> Uh, so Look we at the enormous impact that evolution has had in 150 in the world, years in this culture, in our schools. Most of these men who who wrote the truth didn't have near the impact. Everybody knows who Charles Darwin is. Everybody knows yep. evolution. I mean, it just. That's an impact. I mean, it's, it's really sad, the influence it's had. And as you said, it's not like there is even that great a division between the world and the church. So much of the church has bought into it. Maybe not all of it, but into a lot of it. That's a compromise. Exactly. And of course, we believe that God created everything. But... I mean, look at look at the scientific discoveries and blah 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 blah. Exactly. <coughs> okay. exactly. I mean, we don't have anybody here. Well, your son goes to public school right now, right? Are they still teaching evolution as the only? Um, <coughs> that's a given. He hasn't uh, stated anything to that effect. Um, <coughs> he he knows where what where it is, but. I, I, there was a teacher that my daughter had, <coughs> and he, and he, he brought out creationism. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, he brought out creationism and, and really got in a lot of trouble with the school. Oh. But, uh, <coughs> That's what I'm asking because back in my daughter was born in the '80s, so her high school years, junior high, high school years. <coughs> West study of being uniquely, predominantly Catholic. I mean, like there was in Annie's class of '97, there was four non-Catholics. That was it. One of them was an atheist, and then three of them went to different Christian denominations. <coughs> they were they were not allowed to teach it unless they got every single parent to sign off in the class to teach creation alongside evolution. Even the atheist family signed off. So our kids got it side by side. <coughs> but it took, they had to get special permission from all the parents to teach creation. That's the biggest shame. That's, that's, that's such and a I was wondering if that's still the case, if well, they the even allow that. Our creationism is almost outlawed in public schools. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can well. say my grandchildren, Karen's kids, Karen, Ted's kids, they were teaching them Darwin's theory and that. And as Ed went to school and he told them, not, you're not teaching my kids that. What do they say to him? Um, the, he took them out of the class. <laughs> uh, Julia's class that she's going to take, this next uh, criminal justice class for her master's, has to do with uh, 
something about um, the Constitution and policing and administration of police. So, like, so the first chapter is is a review of the Constitution and the con and in there I was reading because I'm helping with it. <laughs> so I had to read the first 30 pages on that, and it had all the articles and amendments and stuff, mm. and and it actually favors evolution. Um, it, actually, it's in the Constitution that something about, I hope I'm saying the way I read this right, but it's uh, kind of like what you just described. Uh, evolution um, trumps creationism, but they can do creationism, but it, it has to be done subservient to, or... It, it's not supposed to be the norm. It, it has to be the exception. That's, that's in the classroom. Yeah. yeah. That's they, in college, though. In public schools, it's pretty much outlawed. No, I was talking about college. I mean, public schools, I thought. Well, you no, said she's Julia's class. Yes, she's going through the Constitution. I'm, I'm learning about the Constitution for this class that she has to take. Mm -hmm. And in the Constitution, in, in the the explanations of all the amendments and articles and stuff like that, that that's what I was trying to express that, that it says in there that, that uh, creationism cannot be taught uh, yeah uh, instead of or even alongside of unless it's been agreed by all the yeah. Well, okay. something to that effect though. Mm -hmm. Kind of like what she just okay, said. Okay, I misunderstood you. Yes. So it's like it's in our law. It's in the nation. You know, in the. Huh. That's interesting. So, so what what they were doing back then? I don't deal with the high school now, but I'd like I might have to ask our history teachers whether they're still doing that. Well, we down were told that our high school is moving into Common Core curriculum this year, and so that's something I'm going to find. But they dropped that Common Core. They did. Yes, the state. The state has. Because it's. Been such a, they don't know what they're going to go back to, but they dropped the common core. <coughs> yeah. I'll bring that book in next time, so you can kind of, you know, get that direct quote out of there. Yeah. 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 When I had gone to Texas A&M, I was in a class, anthropology, and um, the professor, the first things out of his mouth was, "Those who are Christians in my class, and it was about 500 of us that were in that classroom." And uh, he said, those that are Christians in my class do not come to me and tell me about Christianity. I'm just telling you that I don't believe in Christianity and I'm tired of you Christians coming up and telling me where I stand. Kind of like an invitation. <laughs> Challenge right there. Oh, but it didn't stop because they kept on doing it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it has opened it up, didn't it? Well, um, Wow. There was another. There was another book. You're probably not going to be familiar with. Is a year after Darwin's book, so it's not so well known. And uh, it's called Essays and Reviews. Now, what's that? <laughs> but it was a much more serious challenge to Christianity than even Darwin's. And it seems rather harmless with that kind of title, doesn't it? Essays. You know, essays, reviews. The author is, um, and I've got it here um, somewhere. Oh my! Uh, I, I've been putting these names. Well, I'll tell you who they were. They were from. They were clergymen out of the Church of England. There were eleven of them. Church of England, 
still going strong. What what this their writings turn into a really a liberal manifesto. It's really that. It was German higher critical views. See the the higher critic criticism, which you know just trashes the Bible and God and everything about it, right? Only coming from a Christian angle. Okay, these guys took it to the English side, wrote it in English, and they're basically saying this: the Bible is an ordinary book. It's just like any other book. Now, these are clergymen. They come from the Church of England, ranking high up, right? Okay, there are some good things in it, not so good things in it, and some really bad things in it. All right. Now, the Church of England at this time was not a liberal church. It is now. Uh, of course, same-sex marriage and the whole bit. They've been doing that for the last few decades, and they finally exploded into, uh, oh, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, into where where they're at now. It's just There's no difference between them and the world. But that's Anglican or, or Episcopalian. Um, but they declared their belief of no inspiration of the Bible whatsoever. There was no eternal punishment. Uh, doctrine is just useless. But that it, it was kicked out of the Church of England um, because at this time uh, the people weren't ready for it, the church wasn't ready for it, and uh, they wrote their own book. But it was their book was condemned. But I want to tell you, their ideas never went away, and it became even more uh, undermining. Uh, as time went on about the authority of Scripture. So sooner or later, those books really started taking the toll and we're talking religious people, Christian people are reading these kind of materials. There uh, there was another book and I'm just going to do the five books here today and we'll we'll call it. The, the, The fourth one is The Christian Doctrine of Justification and Reconciliation. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, good, some deep theology here. 1874, Albrecht Ritchie, R-I-T-S-C-H-L, actually. Uh, 1822-1889, tells you where we're at here. Um, There's not really anything of orthodox understanding of justification here at all. Matter of fact, in that book is Christianity is not doctrine. And um, he disagreed with Schleiermacher. That was uh, the first one that we were talking about, that first book. And that's inside Christianity. And, of course, he would believe in Christ, believe in God and all that. But it was all feelings. He said Christianity is not feelings either. It's not doctrine. It's not feelings. It's not... What is it? It's living it. Now, you remember in our Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, where we were at Sunday morning? Yeah. Remember those two? Yeah. What you're getting at there is doctrine. You learn it. And then you live it. Of course, we want to give it, right? So you first start, you followed my teaching. There is the learning it. Conduct, which is what? Living it on a daily basis. So we have to learn it. We can't live it without having doctrine there. Well, his thing was ethics. It's all about ethics. It's how one lives. You don't need the doctrine. You just live it. You just try to be good. All throughout my time at, in Sunday school, that's basically what I heard all the time. You've got to be good. You've got to be good. Be good. Do this. 
do this, do this. It's got to be good. Nothing wrong with being good, but how can you be good, right? Uh, and it came over to America, and it just exploded off the scene. The Americans were ready for it. Practicality. Americans have always been practical, and they just tied right into that with a vengeance. And I think you see the, the second great awakening. What's that? The doobie yeah. and the don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. There are a doobie and a don't. <laughs> you know, ethics and morals. And ethics and morals. Manners. And that sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. Sounds good. Practical. Social gospel is how we can term that. It just it's morality, ethics, it's good works. We look in Galatians, good works, good works, right? Good works is not what salvation is. James explains what good works are as a result of knowing Christ, knowing his word, then out of out of that. But he said we can redeem society through ethics. So is this kind of like that uh, Sermon on the Mount kind of, you know, social gospel? Social gospel, yeah. You know, take the take the take the high standards of the Sermon on the Mount and apply that to living. As do this, do that, do, you know, be exactly. A good, be a good person. And of course, we know Jesus did not have that in mind at all, showing the nature of man. And, and but that's exactly what they love to talk yeah, about the Sermon, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly. You know. And that that sounds like doing. Yeah. <laughs> and and Jesus just cut that right down there. Oh, you like to pray in front of people like that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Or you know, of course, he he showed that um, uh, if you think upon a certain way, if you th- think, yeah. you know, then yeah, that's what you higher, are. He gave the higher. Standard. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. He ends it with that. Oh, you know. But then, wait. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the liberal preaching would be at this time, and the pastors, the pulpits of America, were just grabbing onto this like crazy. Let me suggest to you that you try to be good. And at first, you know, you well, you'd go to Galatians, but they would repeat this over and over and over and over again. That's really the messages I heard in church while I was growing up. That is what that is now. And I look at it and I go, yeah, it really wasn't any, you know, justification by faith. Did I ever hear that? Never. I never heard that. I did hear of trust in Christ. Huh? What part, what church was I? It, it was it was Baptist church. It was the first Baptist church that wasn't even here, and it was in Eldon. And then when I came here, I came I came to find out, and it took me years to figure that out. Oh, this is a liberal church because they didn't you know they were preaching that there wasn't uh, Satan didn't exist. The Bible is really not uh, is not the word of God. There are errors in it. At first Baptist, and just say that was back in the eighties. Uh, Early 80s, yeah. and, and I found I thought, okay, well, it just changed. The pastor was really good with people, but he said, "I'm not a very good preacher, though." And you know what? And people just loved the man. Uh, I did too, but then I I, I kept hungering for like well, people preach the word. Shuler out there at the Crystal. 
it wasn't much different than that. Yeah. Yeah. So what am I doing? Am I running? Am I running him down? What I'm saying is, see how all of this stuff is there right in front of us. He bought what everybody else was buying, and he became less and less biblically tied. And he would use the Bible and say he believed in the Bible, but there were things in the Bible that he couldn't believe. He said that in person, in front of the whole church. And once he did that, I realized what this was all about. And it had been like this for decades before he was. We can trace it back for 50 years because the two other pastors before that, they bought the liberal stuff back in the 30s in a very conservative denomination. And I was I was in that. I was a part of that. But so it doesn't matter the degrees you have. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want Guess not. <laughs> you know, this is what I find all the time. You know, because I I went to Texas A&M for one semester, and that's all I could stand. And I went and finished off at East Texas Baptist College. But um, you know, my my upbringing never never was I. I lo- brought into a world like that, you know, and to to hear these things, like what you were saying, you know, and knowing these things now, but when I was growing up, that was foreign to me. I didn't know anything like that. So, as far as you're concerned, they all taught what, what you learned. Yeah, well, you know, I just, uh, you know, because my dad was Calvinist, and so he taught me the truth, and so uh, I never was in a place where they taught these things. Until I got out of that and went into different other churches, I began to start realizing. I said, "Whoa, man, what's this guy talking about?" That made you more thankful of how you, you know, where the Lord had put you. But you too could have denied that. That could have denied that, but by the grace of God. By the grace of God. That's all I can. Because there was Turretin and there was his son who bought all this. Was he taught right? Yeah. Jonathan Edwards. Ooh. Jonathan Edwards Jr. Yeah, he so turned that way. Oh. Yeah, you think it'd be the other way around. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. He did. That's exactly right. Well, one last one, and I'll close on this. And and uh, it, the fifth book was a book called What is Christianity? And it's by Adolf Harnack. You might have heard of Bar- Harnack. University of Berlin, another German. He he had lectures on the essence of Christianity. He's going to explain what, what is Christianity, what is truly essential in Christianity. And he's going to boil it down. And he says what Christianity has done, it's added so much that it's really not Christianity. We've got to get back to the essence. We have to get back to the kernel of this. And so all of the any the belief system like creeds you need to throw them out um, any kind of uh, organization that you have in there you need to throw all that stuff out and uh, he said we're to that one element and so he, he came to, to to the point of, of Jesus Christ you know the very founder of Christianity and so he's he got into the Gospels and first thing he did he just threw out the Book of John because it was all dealing with Doctrine. The Gospel of John is too doctrinal. So he dropped that out. And so now you have the synoptic Gospels. Okay, Too much theology in John, too extraneous. It's, 
the synoptics, that's the heart of the Christian faith, he says. And so he studied the synoptics, and the more he studied them, a great deal of that he couldn't allow to remain in there. So he started stripping the miracles away, the angels away, the demons, all sorts of those supernatural things, just stripped them right on out. It sounds like Thomas Jefferson whenever he gave his Bible. What's that? He was distilling. Yeah, exactly. Taking all the... All the organics out of it, out of it, and making it. What do you have left? Yeah. <laughs> All the organic. What does he have? And he says, "Here's the real heart of Christianity." And you hear this today: Jesus's words that are, they just breathe peace and joy and certainty. Well, that that's true, <laughs> but. That's the kind of Jesus that he wanted. Anything else, he didn't want that Jesus. And the the Jesus that did the supernatural, he didn't really want that either. But he said he lived in the consciousness of God always. A continual consciousness. Now that sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, we are supposed to do that. But he, you know, today you hear that in in your New Age religion. Ah, same thing. The Christ consciousness. The Christ consciousness. Even though he's not a Christian. But it makes Jesus to be kind of like a hippie running through the meadows and the flowers. That's the way they want him. That that makes it a lot easier for us. We we don't want anybody convicting us. And he said that Jesus rested upon the certainty of things. That he was so conscious with God. And um, there was an Archbishop Temple. And he remarked on that on one of the great mysteries in church history is why anybody would have taken the trouble to crucify the Christ of liberal Protestantism. Why would anybody crucify somebody who's so peaceful and loving? He's got a point there, doesn't he? <laughs> I got a question. How does this fit in with World War One and World War Two? Well, we were going to get to that. It, you you are hitting it right on the head, and that would be the very next one where it says failure of liberalism and life and doctrine, World War One. Yeah. Debbie. But year wise, you don't have the years here. I don't I don't know my history well enough to know when we, World War One. We well, World War One is like in the late uh, teens, uh, in the 1900s. Okay. And I I don't have enough time to get into that, and I need to stop. But um, I will say these five books had a great influence, and they still do. You've seen it. It's happening right at... We call... Okay, just just to touch on it, just a second. I don't think you're going to be in next week. You've got a yeah, three-year-old birthday, right? I'll be here next week. Oh, you'll be back? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll hang on with that, but there was a setback. World War One to this... Um, Providence of God is really something. And when you think of World War One and you think of evil and everything, but yet he always turns for those who love him, he turns out things that are good, doesn't he? Um, there should have been an evolutionary optimistic humanism that would be spreading in this Western culture because of all this. And what happened in Germany with all those great thinkers and the whole world sees what it does and the whole world basically, for the most part, is against Germany. And all that happened in that with all the liberalism that they had, whether it be in Christianity or with it be outside that, um, all of a sudden to some of the liberals in the church it started appearing weak and ineffective 
in that there was real evil. World War One really opened some eyes and it had a step back for a while. Yeah. And Paul Tillich, who is was a liberal of liberals, he said it failed to provide answers at that time. And that's where we'll pick up next week and uh, go from there. <laughs> we're already moving into the 1900s, aren't we? What you were saying about the peace and love got kind of remind me of that Tony Campolo. Oh, like that's, that, that's a social gospel. Yeah. That's that's the guy that portrayed, and he would be one who speaks for Christianity. Had a lot of Christian books out. That man is about as dangerous as anyone can get as he operates in the church. Easy to listen to. He's funny. Uh, he seems like he's really having a deep relationship with Christ. And then his gospel is not a not of grace. It's a social gospel. Uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't say this is all the word of God. And it's really a, a, a Christianity within. He would buy all of this stuff that we've been dealing with. But he's so tricky. And a lot of people followed that. I I, I thought he was really cool. I yeah. like to listen to yeah. him whenever I heard him back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. yeah. Personality that can really be catchy. And that's the whole point. That's how a lot of these, even now, the you know, prosperity preachers, and the, they're charismatic. And yeah. They're good people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you you have to listen to their whole thing, what they're saying, because sometimes they come off like, okay, and then but one, they're going to they're going to give you a tidbit that's going to set set you off, and you're going to know, okay, I know where you're from. What's what's their view? What's their worldview as far as coming from Scripture? Who do they? What do they really think of Christ? What do they think of the the gospel of grace? Uh, you, you can go on and on. And of course, you get people like that, and eventually they start denying hell. Uh, they start denying that Jesus is the only way, and uh, you get that from people that are supposedly writing Christian books and selling them like crazy. Lucifer, that like snow over Yeah. Well, that's the way that we are, you know, in, in his context. But yeah. Well, thanks for um, hanging out with this. I know it. Um, we tried to stay in scripture as much. I thought we had some great discussion here because I, you know, everybody. It's not that anything of this is new, but it's thought provoking. And as we think about it, so this is where we're at. This is how we've gotten here. It's always been these kind of things throughout all of biblical history. But you can take it back and go back just. Three, four, five hundred years. Five hundred years ago is when the Reformation started, and look what has happened. And I think it's by the grace of God that we and many others all across the world still have desired to stay with truth. And it's it's only by His grace because we would do exactly the same thing as those men, and He just kind of keeps putting us back into that. We can be swayed, but He'll put us right back on the track. That's how good God is, and uh, thank you for it.